Hello listeners and welcome to today's episode of Blind Insights. And today, like Star Wars, we thought we started at the beginning, but now we're going back to the beginning. So today, John Duncan will start to talk about the early part of his life and the early part of his life in the army. And over time, we will work back towards the episode you've already heard about his life now as an artist. The ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently. David Graeber, 1961 to 2020. Welcome to Blind Insights. I'm joined today by David Olney. How are you, David? Very well, thank you, Tim. It's good to be in the studio again. We're also joined by a very special guest, returning guest, John Duncan. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me again. So... Tell us about the feedback you got from your first podcast. You were telling me you've had some lovely, positive feedback. Yeah, it was it was quite amazing. I, I went into Adelaide Central School of Art and uh, I walked through the door. I you know, had all my hands full of all the materials and stuff I've got to do for class or use for class. And um, yeah, I had uh, the CEO come up to me. Oh, wow, John, I heard your podcast. It was really good. I went, oh, right. I hadn't even listened to it <laughs> yet. So uh, yeah, she gave me some pretty good feedback and... I kind of saw in her eyes it was like, you know, I know a little bit more about you. Probably, you know, I don't know probably about any, any of the other students here. So, yeah. yeah, it was kind of good. And and then I heard, well, from what I understand, I think she's shared it with a number of the lecturers as well. So I don't know if they've listened to it, but I I know, uh, some, I think some of them have. So, yeah. Which is great. And this is the, I think, a really significant thing and why it's so important to do this series of podcasts with you because in so many cases, people would like to ask a veteran a question but don't want to ask a dumb question. So they don't ask a question at all. So they don't learn anything new. Or they do and they ask really stupid questions like, have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but you get those idiots in, you know, all over the planet. Yeah. yeah. You know, we want to avoid the idiots, but we also want nice people to be brave enough to ask questions, which means they need to hear stories so they know what's, you know, what happens in the world mm. and what people do and what they experience and what the consequences of experience are. I think that's quite relevant um actually asking people who have served veterans um all of that about what, you know, what do you do? What's it about? What's it like to go overseas? You know, all that stuff. I think those questions are they should happen and my ex-wife, her, her dad was a Vietnam vet and she just said to me and even said to the kids, oh, don't ask him about Vietnam, you know, and I, and I think we all know now um, just from studies they've done on, you know, with regards to psychology and all that type of stuff, um, I think it's important to actually talk to people about stuff and, and not just pack it away and all, all of that stuff. Um, so that type of thinking's old. Yeah. Um, you know, we need to talk about stuff. And it's not just the veteran community, it's all of those communities that have been traumatised, um, you know, need to do a similar thing. Well, something just like here in Australia, like if, if you know, Vietnam veterans can talk about it more, then Vietnamese Australians who escaped from there to here can maybe deal with their trauma too. And in the current circumstances of this being recorded in you know, mid-August 2021, things have just got very bad in Afghanistan. So it's almost as important here in Australia that Afghan Australians can talk about their experience of how they got out, what it was like to carry that trauma, what it was like to resettle in a new land. So opening one conversation is a great opportunity to let other people know we care, we want to listen, 
and feel safe to talk, which you know, in the long run is only going to make Australia a more inclusive and more understanding place. Okay, John, where would you like then to start today with talking about you know, your, your journey towards Army as a very young man? How far do you want me to go back? Uh, what day one, week one? You know, it's Earth, up to you. you know, when I was born. What, yeah. what do you? Th- what do you think is the most? You know, the first formative moment where you went, "Hang on, I'm going to join the army." That's probably a good place to start. I could, it? I could start back at day one, week one. That was that was actually <laughs> the first day that I was mucked around by the army. Um, so it's it's a it's a cool story. Uh, so my dad was in the army. He was out at Holsworthy, and he was in 102 Battery. Um, a lot of people, I don't know if a lot of people know about 102 Battery, but they were the battery that was at Battle of Coral in Vietnam, right? So, oh, wow. Yeah, so my my dad wasn't a Vietnam vet. He actually joined just after uh, Vietnam, about 72. Um, but a lot of the guys that he was in that battery were were, um, were in Coral. Um, so the BSM was one of the, or Battery Sergeant Major, he was one of the gun sergeants in the battle. Um, and they his nickname was uh, Robbie One-Eye from what I understand. So um, that kind of led off to another story, but obviously had a glass eye and, yeah. and all the rest of it. So, uh, and uh, my dad got in trouble, trouble. I think he was late for work and got dragged into his office and he was looking down his desk, talking quietly as he was getting a very quiet face ripping and this, he's rubbing this thing in his hands and he just <laughs> looks up at him and there's a folded piece of cloth on his desk and he grabs his glass eye, puts it down, turns it. So it's facing me old man and he said... <laughs> From now on, I've got my eye on you. Now get out of here. That's that's something that should be in a movie. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Can you imagine that if that was in uh, we, we Were Soldiers? You know, yeah. it would be gold. Um, but anyway, so um, so my dad was in 102 Battery. Um, my mum was heavily pregnant and uh, she went into labour at home. So she rang. She, I think she had to go to the phone box out the front because we lived in uh, Holdsworthy Army Village and didn't have a phone. Yeah, no house, phone so she, yet. So she had to go to the phone box and ring. And so she rang and got the, the orderly room corporal or bombardier or whatever, cause artillery. And um, he said, oh, yeah. Uh, she, oh, look, I'm going into labour. Can you ring? Can you get uh, Roy back? Yeah, all he said was, look, we're busy right now. Can you ring back later? <laughs> And hangs up the phone. Um, anyway, I think my mum rang a couple of other people. And then next, you know, I think she's gone into sight. You know, she's, you know, having contractions and all that type of stuff. And uh, went back inside. And all she can hear was this uh, car screaming down the road, around the corner, and into the driveway. And then and my old man, because he had an old uh, 19, like, 70s mini, green little green, you know, racing yeah. green mini. And he's run inside and... Got mum in the car and it got lost going to the, you know, <laughs> all that stuff. Got lost going to the Liverpool Hospital, mind you. All yep. right. Um, and then obviously I was, I was born. But I classify that day as that was the first day that I was mucked around by the army. Right? <laughs> and then what happened after that was my dad went back into work and it was in the 70s, mind you, straight around the back of the desk, grabbed this guy up in the corner of the orderly room about to destroy him and then the BSM comes in and Bombardier Duncan get out of here and grab this guy and drag him into the into his office and you know, lots of loud yelling yep. and then next you know the guy filled the duty list for the month <laughs> so you know that was that was day one week one and the first week of my life mucked around by the army 
You hurry up and wait even before you were out. Yeah. Yeah, well, I had to hurry up and wait for nine months, you know, baking. And then I got mucked around. <laughs> but, yeah, so, look, yeah, interesting story. But anyway, look, I grew up and um, my dad got posted back to here at Adelaide, um, out, out to uh, Warradale, actually. Um, and then I kind of grew up down, you know, Second Gardens area. Um, Mum and dad bought a house down in Ranella. And I uh, went to Mawson High School down, uh, down near Brighton. Oh, um, well, man, that's amazing because I literally live six streets away as a kid when I went to the blind primary school around right right. the corner from Mawson. So, listeners, the high school or the school that you know, John went to and the blind primary school I went to were literally probably 600 metres apart. Yeah, right. So, small world syndrome, typical Adelaide. Is that why there were dudes walking around with sticks? Yep. Because you know, we were balls on the ground. We were literally okay. down the road. <laughs> it was a great, look, it was a great school, man. I, I think it was a, a technical school. Uh, boys technical school. Yeah, I think Brighton High was more sort of the one that was designed to get you to go on, you know, uh, academically, and Mawson yeah. was the one towards let's get you into professions and trades. Yeah, yeah. So I think when I went there, it kind of changed away from the trade stuff. They still yeah. had a lot of trade stuff there to do anyway. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, I it was I was kind of orientated that way anyway because my dad had a always had a machine shop and he shared lathe, you yeah, know, milling machines and stuff. Um, I think I pissed one of the uh, metalworking teachers off because I, I gave us a project and I just took it home. <laughs> Did fin- it properly. Yeah, I turned a full thread on the lathe and, you know, made everything, milled it, took it back. It was actually like a puller. For mm-hmm. a, and I took it back into school after about third week and then the teacher just looks at me and goes, yeah, that's nice, but you're now going to have to find another project to do. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so I, um, yeah, so I joined, uh, joined the army uh, 92 so was uh, there really any choice like obviously from being around your dad's shed as well you know you had the technical facility you could have got a trade did it ever enter your head to you know just be a metal worker or be a boiler maker or, or just army was always going to be the thing I, I probably didn't mention I'd actually I was I joined army cadets when I was about 13 okay so, so you were I, already well on the way yeah so even I, while at high school yeah I was already you know okay. um, what do you call it yeah you know Groomed, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> to, uh, no stranger danger here, listeners. Yeah. So, no, none of that stuff. Um, but yeah, I was motivated certainly to go in that direction. And we had, we actually had some Vietnam veterans as um, like cadet leaders. Mm-hmm. And we had a, a number of guys that have kind of been all over the army and all that stuff. So they kind of gave us that lived experience already. And it just sounded like that really cool adventure and better than Adelaide at the time and, mm. and all that stuff. Um, so I was still in year 12 and I, I was old enough to join the Army Reserve, so I joined joined ten twenty seven in town. Um, so I did my fit whilst I was doing Year Twelve. I was I was out at uh, out at Torrens, um, and that was pretty cool. We did a couple of big exercises actually up north. I actually took a week off school to go and do a two week ex. <laughs> That's the best excuse ever for missing. Well, year it 12. was. I mean, the t- one of the teachers gobbed off and said, "We saw it in the news because there was a heap of uh, PR up there. They had a heap of Blackhawks and other yep. stuff. We did some big life fire stuff up there." Um, but yeah, so it was, that was cool. And then um, that was in the 90s when State Bank crashed, mm-hmm. righto? So economically here in Adelaide, it was looking bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and to go to uni, like my parents didn't have a huge amount of money. So to go to uni, um, it wasn't really an option. I, I didn't really want to go that way anyway. And I just looked at the army as a bit of a... This is going get to get, get, get me out of Adelaide and I'm going to mm-hmm. go and see somewhere else. I'm going to go and live somewhere else. Um, and all that stuff. I didn't really look at it as a long-term career. Yeah, so at that point yeah. it might have been like you know, three, six years, but not thinking it would be a full career. Yeah, I, I looked at kind of a, you know, going to 
I obviously want to go to infantry, but then you know, going off in maybe some other specialist areas. I did never never did that, but mm. um, you know, and then I was looking at possibly getting out and doing something else. So I, I didn't really look at it as a long term type of career. It just kind of happened because um, mm. the state bank crashed. There was a lot of economic stuff going on. I think back then even the interest rates were like eighteen percent on a house. Yeah, I think eighteen yeah. percent was certainly eighty nine ninety. Mm. Maybe it was back down to fifteen sixteen by then, but it was still fairly bad. So the federal government were cutting back massively on defence anyway. Um, so I, I applied for the regular army, and I didn't get in. And they then said, "Well, we've got this ready reserve stuff across the road, and you can sign up now in January." And I thought, "Well, I need a job." And they said to me, "Look, if you go to ready reserve, you'll be able to go transfer over the reg- the the, uh, the regular army," which was, you know, one of those typical lies that they tell you at the recruiting <laughs> office, including. Hey, when you get on the bus, take your uh, your golf clubs because they've got a great golf course. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, transferred the Ready Reserve, um, and then I went straight up to Brisbane. So I went to Forty Nine RQR um, in Brisbane, and uh, you know straight into recruit training, um, and then straight after that, you know infantry training. And then straight after that, you know, in a, in a 49. And up there we had 49 RQR, we had six area and eight, nine. So the three battalions had all become ready reserve uh, battalions. So we're a whole ready reserve brigade. Um, but yeah, love, love Brisbane, great location. You know, going from Adelaide straight up to there, you know, nice warm weather, mm. um, just awesome place. Um, and with ready reserve, I would imagine it would have been a great mix of people thinking again, don't know what I want to do in the long run, but this is a good thing now when things are economically bad to have a job, get the experience, be away from home, bit of adventure. At this point, this is, you know, just after the end of the Cold War, no one can quite imagine what the army is going to be used for in the next five to 10 years. So it's an adventure without much sense you're likely to be put, you know, in grave danger. So it would have been an interesting bunch of people, I would imagine, in that period. Also a lot of very smart people because yeah. what they did was they advertised it to all the guys that wanted to do uni. Mm. So if you went to the Ready Reserve, did your full-time year, you had four years after that where you come in, you had to do like 50 days or something like that. Mm. It might have been 20, or I can't remember. I think it was 50 days. Uh, they wanted 50 days out of you, but they would obviously pay you uni fees mm. and and all this other stuff. And I went so, to university with a lot of guys, you know, who were doing that. Yeah. Like they would just do a stint in the mid-semester break. They'd do a chunk over the summer. There would be their days. But they could get through uni without having to have a part-time job on the side and actually do it really well. Yeah, yeah. And so that kind of brought a bit of a different mentality of people mm. um, that kind of thought well outside the box, mm. um, including they. that was when they first brought in this employer support scheme. And they, you know, the boundaries on it weren't really tight. And there was a couple of smart asses that got out there and said, if I go and buy two lawnmowers and a whippersnipper and a trailer or just borrow my dad's trailer, get myself an ABN, <laughs> um, I'll then say, well, because I was away from work or away from Adelaide for 20 days because I had to do this, I'll, I'll char- also charge the army, you know, employer benefit scheme. Mm. <laughs> so these guys weren't mowing a single lawn registered a business and were claiming back their stuff. And we used to make massive jokes about it because mm. there were other guys that had, you know, businesses and other things. You know, some of these guys were plumbers and electricians and they were claiming it back. But then you had the smart-ass uni student who invented himself a lawnmower business and they were also mm. claiming employer benefit scheme. So 
Yeah, Jim's golden handshake mowing. Yeah, that, we've never mowed a lawn, and the money keeps flowing. But that's the problem when you you get smart people to join the army. Yeah, you know they 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 look at the legislation and just you know pull it apart. And, and I would imagine there would have been a, a fair proportion of sergeants getting rather angry. Correct, mm. they were the corporals, <laughs> sergeants, warrant officers going, "You cannot, I can sir, it's perfectly legal, well mm. within your your legislation. <laughs> just because I run at a loss, not my problem." <laughs> Uh, so yeah, it was interesting bunch of guys, and and also what it what it was too, because I stayed there after my full time year, um, a little while, and I remember we had this uh, uh, sergeant who'd been posted in. He'd you know been all over the Royal Australian Regiment. He got he posted into um, recruiting in Brisbane. Then got posted over to us, and he'd done he'd done work with the Army Reserve before, not the Ready Reserve because Ready Reserve is all, all new and. Um, he said, oh, we've got a battalion X rocking up. He goes, out of this platoon of 35, he goes, there'll be 10 blokes rock up. And I said, no, no, the whole platoon will be... And he goes, no, nah, mate, I've seen the reserves before. And I said, no, no, it'll be uh, on Monday. There'll be 35 dudes standing at the front ready to have their name marked off the roll. Mm-hmm. 35 dudes rocked up. And he's like, what's going on here? Like I told you. Because right. these guys had a different mentality. Mm. you know, and, and also that 50 days that they had to achieve was they had a couple of milestones. They used to call it the um, the dash for cash. <laughs> and uh, you'd have to do all your fitness stuff, right? And your, your 15 k and you'd have to do some, medi- you know, do your dental, medical and all that type of stuff. If you ticked all that off, yeah, you get a 1500 buck bonus. So you'd see blokes at the end of the 15 k go, well, we've got five minutes to get there. And they'd, they'd start pumping it out. And these guys going, yeah, I just got my 1500. <laughs> And there's like the regular <laughs> army corporals and stuff over the side getting upset because they're not, they're not going to get 1500 bucks. Yeah. But these ready reservists are, you know, so they kind of, the, the IRA guys didn't really get care, but it was still, I think the people that got upset the most were the people in admin having to pro- process all this extra legislation stuff that regular army soldiers weren't getting. Yeah. You know? And knowing they were going to get harder questions and people going, well, I can circumvent that silly rule. Yeah. 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 But, you know, because of all of that stuff they set in place and 50 days and you've got to do all the stuff, people would rock up. Mm. Um, it was genuinely meant to be appealing, listeners, and this is the point. I knew several people who did this because, really, it was the best way to get your education and get an income and get the experience and get the adventure. It, it's really interesting. You know, we're all used to thinking of John Howard as the Prime Minister who oversaw everything after 9-11, and yet... You know, the, one of the first things he destroyed was the ready reserve scheme. He goes, oh, it's not economically viable and we've got no need for the extra security capacity. But what it was as well, it was a kind of a, a cost-cutting tool yeah. at that time. For like regular the, army. Yeah, that, yeah, that brigade should have been regular army mm. uh, and it has, it's gone back to being. So that was the kind of the trade-off. But what mm. I will say, and look, you know, I spent 26 years in the infantry. I look back at those times and I look at the capability that was built and the army hasn't had the same capability ever again. And, um, you know, and this is looking objectively, you know, without, you know, my allegiances to regular infantry soldiers and all the rest of it. Um, I think we should get rid of the army reserve in Australia and we should, re- we should repeat that model. Mm. Um, I mean, they have tried to do it and they call it a gap year, mm. but it's individual soldiers all around the army where this was, was a group a, of people who were all very similar, a having a similar it was, experience. It was a brigade, yeah. and that brigade, because of that group of people that were all the same, 
that brought uh, the cohesion 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 mm. together, mm. Um, and you know people were the same. Where this other gap year is is very much like you know being a, a na- national serviceman mm. sitting next to a regular soldier. Um, so yeah, look, if they, I think one of the reasons they they got rid of it too is it did cost a lot of money. Yeah, but. If you want capability, you have to spend. Yeah, you have to pay for capability. Yeah. There's no choice. Yeah, where the if you looked at the Army Reserve right now, it doesn't really provide much of a capability at all. If you went out to um, the Reserve Infantry Battalion here in Adelaide, um, they only get about 10 or 15 blokes rock up on a weekend, where back in the 90s, we would have the whole unit would mm. rock up for a two-week activity. Here they can't even get a rifle company to mm, to rock up, and there's obviously there's um, there's reasons for that. It's um, since they changed the model and how much training people do, it's very un- it's very much unachievable. Mm. Um, it used we always used to base things around two week courses mm. to you know essentially get the guys to a certain level. You guarantee that there's enough time to learn the process, perfect the process, and then apply the process. Well, they yeah. forget the word reserve. Yeah, so. You know, reserve is you're at this level, and we've got a reserve army that we can they can iron a uniform, they put it put it on, they can carry a rifle, and they can do simple tactics. Mm. That's a lot easier to take, and very quickly train to get back up to the regular army standard. All right, mm. where now they're kind of they want people to be just below or or at the same level as a regular soldier, but also have your job, mm. which is not it's unachievable. Yeah, again, multitasking to the point of absurdity. Well, yeah. you know, being a regular soldier versus a reserve soldier, and I've done it, and I've been a really reservist as well, there's no substitute for doing it full time. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it comes also with a different mentality. So what was it like when you went from being ready reserve then to being full time? Because, again, you'd been in the environment of these people who thought it was going to be short term, and you at the time were thinking it was short term. So to then you know move forward in your career in Army, was it a bit like hitting the other side of the culture, you know, hitting the slower, more hierarchical side. Ready Reserve was very similar to re- the regular sold, re- regular environment. Okay. Um, and we had to, at that particular time, because they raised it so quickly, it lasted, I think, all up about five years. Yeah. Um, it was 90% of the soldiers, or 99% of the soldiers were, as in diggers and, and all of that, we're already reserved. So there was a couple of ARA blokes, mm. uh, but they were coming down on compassionate postings and the rest of it. All the corporals, all the sergeants, 99 or 90% of them, and then they brought in some reserve sergeants and you know officers from even 1027 sent some guys up there mm-hmm. from all around the country to be ready reservists. Um, and that kind of filled out part of that particular cohort because you, you can kind of understand you raise this ready reserve element well, it's going to take a number of years to to get people through all of those ranks. Yeah, and they it was just totally unachievable. Um, yeah. So they have to bring regular soldiers in. So we had regular corporals posted in for all of the rifle sections. So the lieutenants they'd actually set up a an officer scheme for the young lieutenants, and what they did is they put them through Kapuka, and then after they finished Kapuka, they sent them straight to RMC. And then they had a special course at RMC, which didn't go for very long. It just went for so it's a bit like the months. thing that's been done the last four or five years of that yeah. that short, intense version of getting more experience as a reservist. Mm. You're not like a full timer, but you're also not like a normal army reserve officer. 
Yeah. Okay. So we keep revisiting that model of fast-tracking people well, to fill gaps. I think the Ready Reserves, that, that data is still there and okay. there's still people who remember that it was there. So yeah. it's quite easy to pull that data out and they can replicate stuff. It's yeah. like when they talk about the gap year, it's really reserved. Just reinvent, put a, a new label on yeah, it. Yeah, like you said, instead yeah. of having everyone together, it's you're off in a unit as the one person on the gap year program. Yeah. So you don't have that overall cohesion of a, a group, but you're slotted into normal army, so you get a better sense. Well, if you went full time, this is what it would be like. Well, even gap year had had its issues in the beginning because army wasn't prepared for it. Mm. Um, when I was at the school of infantry, we put I actually put one of the first gap year platoons through, um, and they were going to send these guys up to five and seven area. And it, I think it was five area at the time we were about to deploy somewhere. And the CO said, I don't want them. And, mm. he, and they said, why? And he goes, because they're only going to be here for a year. Mm. Um, so those guys got pushed across the road to two cav and used as what they would call veggies or, yeah. you know, uh, patrol scouts. Yeah. So they didn't even get to do their infantry role. Mm for the rest of the year. So that can be the kind of cause and effect. Sometimes mm. politically we put things in place and then the guys don't actually get used mm. for the role that they're going to do. So, yeah, so after um, after that, I, I transferred the regular army. I actually got me and another guy called Craig Lineker got, stayed at 49 because they uh, we, we got poached by the CO. Uh, we got promoted pretty much after about 12 months and stayed there as Lance Jack. So I, I got involved with the, the Ready Reserve Scheme for a couple of years after that. And that was building the capability. You know, there is one of the regular Carter staff. So that's um, that's what we kind of did there. Um, but right from early on, and this is significant, you were in an organisation that was trying to build itself and work out what to be and how to be and very quickly transitioned to helping make it what it was going to become. Yeah. So you've always been either something brand new being trained or then converted across to being the person training the other people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and you're right, I have done that through you know, most of my career. And I think also those last couple of years, right up until about 99, you know, I stayed down in Brisbane and I bounced around to six over to 49. I did some stuff up, a little bit of stuff up at eight, nine. Um, I was involved in running the two-week recruit courses for some of the, like nine RQR, one of the reserve units. Mm-hmm. Um, we instructed one of the last reserve recruit training courses. Mm-hmm. And I was also involved with the Army 21 trial. I don't know if you've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah, so the Army 21 trial was very, very unique. Um, based on a Canadian model where it was essentially a combat team, combat battle group Mm. models. Um, And the infantry battalion at that stage had two reconnaissance companies, two rifle companies, um, and then we had a fire support company and an administration type company. Um, And I think it was a, was that a reconnaissance? Yeah, so part of the reconnaissance company was um, they had CAV in there with their LAVs. Um, the fire support company, we got rid of mortars. We had 155 Hamel guns. Mm. So they put all of this stuff together and trialed it. But again, back in the 90s when they're trialing this stuff, you know, you've got all those um, you know, high-end officers, lieutenant colonels and above. They're still thinking back in Vietnam era, mm. um, trying to convince them to have change. They did the trial and then that was it. They kind of gathered the data and we went back to what we were doing again. Mm. So... You know, th- those particular years and, and even in the 2000s, Army really struggled with a lot of change. Mm. Um, and you've probably heard all this stuff before, you know, people sit, still thinking we should fight in the jungle and all that type of stuff and, and uh, versus urban top fighting and, and all that type of stuff. Um, yeah, but it's that thing that, you know, people are given their training, then they put it into experience and then they get later in their career and they get tired and they don't want to learn new stuff. 
you know, I've made the argument before, if I've got to go to the doctor, I want the doctor to be under 35. I want them to be young enough to still enjoy learning, not that old that they just want to use what they learnt last year. And it's pretty much all professions are much the same. Most yeah. people lose the hunger for new knowledge and new experience eventually. Well, the military is also a bit of a gated community when it comes to, you know, us just kind of being part of just everyday society. Um, and that starts from Kapuka when you get broken down, you know, and you take orders and, and do all that stuff. And if you've kind of walked through all of those regimental um, appointments and now you're a crusty warrant officer, class mm. two, and that's, that's it for you, you're now sitting in a policy job. You might be sitting in a, uh, a range policy job out at um, Pakapunyal and some people are coming through the door all fresh and new and saying, hey, man, can we do this stuff on the range? Can we get rewrite the PAM? Mm. And he, they're going... He's, this old crusty warrant officer's going, no, says black and white, mm. must be in the prone position when you do this and that's all you can do. Mm. Um, obviously, we've developed the range, Pam, to be able to do more stuff now. But it took a lot of pain to get those warrant officers <laughs> to let that happen. Yeah. Well, you can hear that. <laughs> yeah. Great. You know, there's difficult people who, you know, have too much tribal ownership over stuff. Mm. Um, and can't think outside the box because they've been well with inside that box mm. which had a hessian off area that they can't see the walls of the box. Mm. Um, trying to motivate those particular people to really get you know, out and start advancing mm. stuff and developing things. And they're not um, personally experiencing the need for change. Well, this kind of comes back to what I'm doing with the art space and that is maybe the army kind of gets rid of a bit of your creativity. And that's the result of it, mm. you know what I mean? So if you've got guys that have been stuck in policy jobs and it's black and white um, and they've got bosses above them and they're kicking them every time they think of something new and then they get reinforced, positively reinforced, mm. that when you do a black and white thing in accordance with the policy, you'll get rewarded. Mm. But if you think outside the box, you'll get, you know. Mm. Physical captain. pain. Yeah. Mm. What are you going to do? You're not going to yeah. think creatively anymore. Um, so... You know, like we'll talk about later what I'm kind of doing in the future with my guys, but if you can get soldiers thinking creatively again or, you know, veterans thinking creatively again, they'll they'll look at improving your mm. life. And this is an interesting um, thing with you ending up in all these training roles. You started in Army in a creative period. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. it left a little bit more of your creativity alive probably than has happened to a lot of people who've had a full career. Yeah, and, and look, what I will say is... You know, when you start work, walk, walking into the tactical area, when you're a you know, section commander, when you're a platoon sergeant, you're having to um, advise a platoon commander and sit down and work a plan. Um, you know, or you're working with an OC or a CO and you, you're working stuff, working pl tactical planning. You have to be creative. Mm. But, but you still have to be able to work within the black and white area. Mm. And some people also look at the black and white area as it's safe. Mm taking risks is hard and thinking creatively outside the box is a lot of the time taking a big risk mm -hmm. particularly when you're looking at you know tactical employment of you know soldiers and resources and all the rest of it yeah so um interesting times in brisbane had a great time down there i've done a number of trips to malaysia and i've done a, I've done a couple of rotations through there um that was really good eh? like um you know, getting into Southeast Asia and having a look at that space and working with different cultures certainly grew, made me grow up quite a bit, eh? 
Um, I did a trip to Brunei as well back in yeah, 94. In the period where they were open to that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What an experience for a young Australian from Adelaide going, you know, to essentially a little Islamic kingdom that wanted to embrace modernity to a certain level but was quite culturally conservative at the same time. Oh, very conservative. I mean, um, you know, we're army heavy drinkers back then. Mm. No pubs in the place. Mm. Anywhere. Um, so we had a couple of days off and I think the boys didn't know what to do with themselves. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, I think there was a there was a couple of guys from 6RER came over with for that particular trip. And they went and hired a car and they got on the piss and uh, they went down to the Sultan's Palace and the gates were open so they just drove down the road. And I, think they, I think they got about 200 metres down the main drag. They can see this, you know, big, what do you call it, look like a mosque thing with a golden dome yeah. on it. And then uh, a Gurkha jumped out of the... <laughs> out of the nicely trimmed trees and said with their you know SA audience like stop turn around leave go. now <laughs> <laughs> so yeah no it was an interesting trip jungle over there man it's like jumping on a discovery channel you know trees that are as wide as your house and mm. 70 metres tall and it's dark all, all day round yeah because like, not, not, not black. get to the canopy floor not like yeah. black but um, probably middays, like you know, if the uh, clouds, you know, we get like a really cloudy day mm. and it's grey, and everything's just grey. That's that's midday. Mm. Sun would go down at about eight. Or we'll come up in the morning about eight o'clock in the morning. It'd go down at about four. Mm. Yeah, just amazing. And you get those the sound of all of those animals, birds, every um, bug known to humanity. Oh yeah, us. yeah. I um, I think we were doing a river crossing, and I I was just propped. Uh, down the ground I, st- I got up and I looked down and there was a centipede about a metre long and about you know about 20 or 30 mil round you know what I mean <laughs> I think god if I got hit by that because I was in the middle of nowhere we would have had to get pulled out by a helicopter mm. so uh, yeah I had a mate of mine got, got bitten by a snake big python and we didn't know what it was so we had to kind of cut a track and get him out and it was funny we'd, we'd you'd stop and we'd just stop for a say a five minute break or or something like that and for some reason these big enchants would come in they'd just come from nowhere and then I think it might be the smell of food in your pack or something but they wouldn't go and bite you and it was just kind of weird stuff um, we saw a couple of orangutans fighting in a tree it was funny wow yeah yeah beating the shit out of each other <laughs> and one of them you can see it because of the canopy you hear thump 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 the canopy and then back up the tree again um, <laughs> but yeah so we um yeah, I did a lot of jungle operation stuff. I've been to Canungra a couple of times. I've, I've done about seven or eight trips to Canungra, uh, a couple of trips to, to Tully. I used to like that stuff. And if anything, the, the Canungra trips really kind of set up um, a lot of my ideas for training and how to implement stuff. Because uh, the guys that you that there that had a whole, a whole heap of old Vietnam veterans. So people with tons time. of experience. Oh, yeah. And recent enough that it was worth still learning from. Oh, yeah. 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 It was just it's just amazing. And, and those guys had a had a big budget. And you'd, you'd literally get on some trucks. The trucks would rock up on time. You'd get on the trucks. They'd stop off in a piece of area in the training area at that exact time of the training thing. You'd get off the bus. You'd walk down a track. And then in the middle of the like close country area would be a classroom that's cut out of everywhere it's got seats and there's a directing staff out the front there with his big DS stick in one hand cammed up whiteboard to the right and he's just looking at everyone funny and everyone's got looking at it looking at him funny too he's not talking to us man you know what the and then next you know two slabs go off 
so 700 mils of uh, or 700 grams of explosive only about five five to ten meters away from us on either side of a group of 120 of us um and just and the trees shake and the leaves come out of the trees and the ds just looks at us and says welcome to the ambush lesson <laughs> everyone turn to the whiteboard now during this lesson you'll be taught you know what i mean yeah so it was just it was just really cool stuff like that you know um, and what a great way to get people wanting to learn yeah and get their endorphins up yeah and a bit of fear bit of adrenaline but also absolute credibility and these guys had it rehearsed yeah. down to the thing that when i went back there for the second and third time because they'd change it around a little bit we ended up going back to the same place and the ds is out the front looking it's the same had to wait for and the i just turned to, to the digger back. next to me i said as soon as that other guy sits down two slabs will go off one over there and one over there Weapon of the ambush, lad. So, so they kind of it, it was. It, it was, was like, like Groundhog Day. Well, the, the thing I learned about that is, these guys had rehearsed these lessons so much that it was now, you know, we call it the sausage factory, mm. all right. But they'd rehearsed it and they'd gone and critiqued it so much that they'd worked out what's the perfect lesson and yep. how to deliver it. All and, right? and if we do it on mass, we'll actually have the same lesson every time, and we'll be able to pump out quality. Yep. Um, and that's something that I really did take on my journey with all my instruction down the track was having a heavy heavy look back at how you kind of do all that stuff and how you can refine it instead of just pulling out some materials really quickly and just snapping a lesson together. Yeah, I'd learned the same thing teaching people. You experiment until it works and then you experiment less and less and you don't ever want to lose the ability to experiment and improve but also you're not going to experiment just for the sake of it when you're getting a consistently really high quality outcome yeah and that's you know that goes in right in the teaching stuff which i you know i ended up doing a lot of instructional stuff within within army um like i said i've instructed a lot of you know, infantry courses and i've got posted the school infantry later on and um you know I, I did kind of use that creativeness with designing training with you know coming up with better methods to you know get people interested in stuff instead of just um you know pumping out crap Mm. Um, but yeah, so I, I uh, from there I uh, did my last, well, not my last Malaysia trip, but I did a Malaysia trip in '99, um, and then obviously East Timor blew up, um, and we were in uh, Butterworth. We got pulled in, and we were all put on standby. So we're on standby to go in and you know, do you know, service-assisted um, evacuation of people into Jakarta. So we didn't go in there, but we were definitely put on standby and that's part of the job being in the southeast asia in you know rough company butterworth is that's as rough company already projected in southeast asia it can be picked up at any time mm. taken anywhere to do a job then i came back um i got posted up to one rir um and then i went over with uh with one rir to east timor in 2000 2001 what was it like in 99 to be sitting there in malaysia knowing you guys might be getting on the plane soon after seven years in the level of anticipation must have been pretty amazing. Oh, yeah, everyone's pretty excited. We were kind of... Because how many times have these types of things happened and no one actually gone anywhere? Yeah. So we were kind of at the same time, yeah, we were all kind of excited, yeah, something might happen. But just assuming more than likely because yeah. it's the 90s, nothing's going to happen. Yeah, because, yeah. you know, how many times have everyone been put on standby and we haven't gone anywhere? So we're just like, oh, yeah, whatever. Like, mm. I'll, I'll believe it when I'm on the plane. Mm. We didn't get on the plane, so I didn't believe it, mm. you know. But, yeah, so uh, went to um, went up to one area. And we then deployed East Timor in October 2000 and we sort of went, it was over about six, seven months. Uh, so how much feedback had you been 
getting from people who'd already been there for that first year before you went? Um, were many people back yet? Were you able to get some sense of what you were going into? Well, we didn't really have we didn't have Facebook. Mm. That's like, what I mean. It's pre-social email. media. It's a very different world. Did have email, but guys back then didn't even have computers. Yeah, really. I mean, I had a I had a I think I bought my first I had, a, I had a mobile phone, brick phone. I think it was mm. back in about ninety five, mm. and I had you know that was it about mobile phones and stuff. But so mobile phones were around, but um, no social media. Um, Maybe some. I think I had a Hotmail account, something like that. Yeah. But I hardly ever used it. it was I used it when I was in Malaysia. Mm. That was about it. Um, but no, look, I hadn't heard from anyone. But I went up to one hour, and a lot of the other guys went over to six. So what was what was my debrief? Well, I got off it on the Jarvis Bay in Dili and rolled off the thing. It's like, oh, Dunks is here. <laughs> All these blokes from six. Hey, Dunks, what's going on, mate? Yeah, yeah, let's go. Keep your head down, mate. Just do this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no worries, mate. See ya. Dumping on the truck and all was gone. That was it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So, went with, uh, I was I was with Tent- Temple Tune and Delta Company. We went down to, uh, uh, went into Dili, did a did some briefing stuff um, and then straight down to the border. Um uh, went down to a place called Mimo on the border and we were there for about eight weeks. Um, so that was kind of, you know, our first kind of hit in and we did, yeah, did the stuff on the border down there. So, yeah, there was some, fu- you know, a few funny little things happened but nothing out of control. So by this point, yeah, from what I remember by that point, it was that things had calmed down but there was a power vacuum. And in the power vacuum, there sort of ended up being new instability that no one knew what happened next that's sort yeah. of the bit i remember from roughly that time yeah so we had east timorese had had pushed into west timor and there were groups of people coming back back across the border at that particular stage so it was porous quite consistently yeah so border. that was you know we we're having to deal with those particular peoples coming across the border and having to process all of those particular peoples and particularly when we've got militia still in the area so the militia were maybe you know, making out of those particular people and all the rest of it uh, but at that particular time, the border was kind of was reasonably secured, and they had TNI Indonesian troops on the other side. They were on the other side of the border. We were on this side of the border, and we were just, you know, looking at the security side of it. There, anything really stick in your head that you know you'd been expecting that going would be like this, and when you got there, something was radically different, or did you feel well prepared for what you experienced? Um, look, because I because I'd already been into Malaysia. And I've been into Brunei. Those environments were kind of very similar. Mm. So, for me, I don't think it was, you know, dealing with a cultural change side of it wasn't really that bad. For some of our younger blokes, it was. They've so, never been overseas before, and then next, you know, they're in East Timor. Um, and and look, the there was a lot of poverty. Mm. Okay, um, there was a lot of poverty. All right. So even when we when, when we were driving through the trucks through um, for, through Dili. Um, you know, we're talking only eight, nine months previous, Interfed had gone in mm. and there's still fires. Mm. There's still stuff burning. There's still a lot of destruction and all that type of stuff around us. And that stuff doesn't wasn't wasn't just in Dili, it was on the border as well. Mm. Um, but on the border, the issue had they had down there was the locals getting in that resu- resupply stuff that you normally get in, say in Adelaide, you know, when they bring trucks in, mm. well, they weren't getting any of that stuff down there. So we had, um, you know, all of those UN functioned organisations were down there and we were essentially providing protection whilst those pe- people were doing that stuff, starting to kind of sort things out amongst that, you know, 
pockets of militia were still doing their their stuff around the place. Um, so you know, security was still quite quite high for us. Um, so the UN people who were there was that a, a mixed bag of people from all over the world or largely yeah. from within the region? Yeah, and um, look, you know, they talked a lot about NGOs and you know non-government organisations, and you know, so like even um, World Vision was in there, mm-hmm. right? And after seeing World Vision, I won't ever give them a dollar again. They literally had a building with two brand brand new. Uh, Range Rovers parked out the front with a, f- a fence around it, mm-hmm. all painted white with a couple of air cons. And I never saw them leave the building. I never saw them go out and assist people. So I just went, well, I'm not going to give these people, I'm not going to donate to them in the street here in Adelaide if I see them. So right in now. a lot of ways, perhaps the biggest part of the experience in East Timor was seeing what the new role was going to be in the 21st century yeah. for infantry. And that is providing security for whether it be government people or NGO people, so they can theoretically go about their business. Yeah. So in a sense, and where you're thinking, starting to think like a training person, you know, is your brain starting to go, hmm, okay, the things we need to add to training and the reasons why I'm going to end up having to argue with warrant officers is because this isn't necessarily a skill set we were ready for and this is the new job. Were you, you know, was it giving you the sense that this was an inkling of what was to come or you were just doing the job that was in front of you at the time and... We just had to kind of deal with what was happening at the time. And, and like I said, the place had been devastated, right? And we were into the UN side of it now, you know what I mean? Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of non-government organisations in there trying to do stuff. But at the same time, I saw them not actually doing anything, you know? And it's and it's like almost a little bit of a smoke and mirrors. You know, East Timorese have now provided a financial model for a number of organisations to come in, wave the flag saying they're giving food and stuff out but whether they're doing it's another question mm. um including the red cross weren't really doing much either um you know it was just I'd, i i was actually quite uh disillusioned i was looking at this going you know you see all this advertisement on the tv where you give people this money don't you, aren't they supposed to go and do stuff yeah well, this you know? is why we now have that thing where you can check with a charity how much of the money actually makes it to the yeah. ground to see how much disappears in the midpoint so in a sense do you think it might have been because in the same way that you know, the military were having to learn to do this new job, that also the NGOs were having to learn to function in a different environment. It wasn't that they were going in once there was enough peace that they could work on their own. They were having to get used to having you guys there providing security for them. Look, I think... I'll I'll kind of go back to what I was kind of talking about before, just with, you know, what I saw and, Mm. you know, some of the things I was really disillusioned by and horrified with, actually. And some people talk about, like, moral injury... Um, and I think that's where, for me, some of that stuff started to happen. Um, you know, I, I rocked up to we, – we got a call out. Um, there was a big riot happening in, a, in one of the small villages um, and it was over a food distribution thing. We rolled up there and uh, my patrol – my platoon was doing a – well, my section was doing a patrol a couple of k's down the road. So we had to quickly jump on the road and run down there. We rocked up and there's the food program with a uh, eight-ton truck. And they've got bags, you know, 20 kilo bags of rice. And there's 200 people in this, look like a soccer pitch. And they're kicking bags of rice off the back. And people are fighting over it, Mm. you know. And it was like there's these starving people and they're being treated like animals. Mm. Um, And as soon as we rocked up, whole platoon, weapons, people stopped. 
people stopped doing stuff. Mm. And then we went down there to say, hey, everyone back. Righto, we'll give you a bag of rice at the time. We know everyone's starving, but we've got to do this properly, right? Mm. So, yeah, that kind of that kind of hit home a bit, you know what I mean? Mm. Look, looking at stuff like that. Um, and then just, you know, some of the some of the stuff that we had to see in there was, yeah, it was bad. You know, it was uh, just seeing people's total lives totally destroyed, um, you know, family members have just been all been wiped out mm. um there was a there was a woman in the village who her whole family had had their you know throats cut in front of her you know she'd come up to the back fence and shake the fence every day mm. you know what i mean so you know things like that it, it's um i mean we did some good stuff over there there was um uh there was a uh um a woman in the Mimo village and uh so this lady ran down to the gate and said, oh, you know, this lady's in, in labour. And my platoon sergeant and the other um, uh, patrol medics went up there to, to assist. Um, and my platoon sergeant delivered a baby. Mm. You know what I mean? So, and they called the, because my platoon sergeant's nickname was Jack. They named the kid Jack. Yeah, you know which what is I mean? really amazing. Yeah. I think the critical thing here is you've brought up this important idea of moral injury. Yeah. And that is you prepared that you want to do the best possible thing and treat people with respect and care. And if that's not what happens, that's not good for people. Yeah. And I think it's something that the footage we were getting back here in Australia was, all right, there's chaos, we need to make it better. But we don't ever get the sense with the footage back in Australia was, were you able to make it better? Were you given the resources necessary and the flexibility to help say, hey, East Timorese people, we want to treat you well. We want to behave well, and let's get an outcome everyone can be proud of. I think, um, look, East Timor was um, it was a very large trip. After East Timor, we only really sent elements of units. Mm. Where East Timor was a battalion plus mm. trip, so there wasn't people fighting over getting on a trip like, particularly like Afghanistan, Iraq, where we send like a platoon or a company, mm. and there people are fighting over going there. And I've seen people fight over trips, man, hard. Mm. Um, everyone just went. Yeah, you know, we we obviously had some guys that were injured just due to training that stayed behind. But yeah. I think when but in when, the main, your whole unit went. You got this experience. You did it together. It gave army a ton of extra information very quickly. Everyone got to see what their training was for. So, in a sense, it's such a positive thing to have a mission like that, where as much good can come out of a mission almost as possible. Well, there wasn't the morale issues that they have now mm. because the whole unit went, mm. um, and that was. A very very stupid thing that the government did to to suddenly say right we're only going to send a rifle company mm. because those other rifle companies had fight over it man. Mm. and then the officers are fight over it and the sergeant to fight over the jobs mm. um, where when you send the whole unit no one's fighting man you yeah, don't mess with morale yeah and they have and and I and we've we've even seen um, won't mention who they are but certain RSMs get up and say this is the A team and this is the B team mm. what do you think that does to an infantry battalion. Yeah, A you, team's going. B team, you're staying behind. Yeah, you've forever altered how people are going to think of themselves and each other. Oh yeah, yeah. And you know, we talk about you know all the SF guys getting all these trips and lots of stuff. They did. They got Buku trips, but the infantry soldiers were were kind of left behind. They weren't you weren't getting those other jobs. Um, but then there's that's a whole another whole mm. other story. There's other people out there who can probably talk about it better than I can. By the time you went to East Timor, were there any of the Vietnam veterans left in sort of like the last year of their career? And yep. they got to do a very different Southeast Asian tour? Yep. What was it like for them ending their career 
on something so different to the start of their career. Do you think it helped them kind of close a book? Um, I think, to, to be honest, the best way to describe East Timor was it was like deploying a, a battalion to Vietnam. So all of the processes to get us there, get us back, and the actual environment, like the actual terrain mm. and what we were doing over there, apart from obviously dealing with you know Viet Cong and mm. you know full conventional you know peer on peer stuff mm. um, I think it's the same so for them they kind of you know there was a couple there was only a couple though I mean mm. to be honest I think we had a staff sergeant uh, who'd been in South Vietnam okay so because I thought you'd be down to only one or stuff. two by then there wouldn't yeah, be many left it was QEs and yeah. I think a couple of majors yeah. um, yeah, so they were the kind of guys. I mean, yeah, see, yeah, old staff sergeants. They were. It was funny. It was a couple of them. But yeah, like, it, it's like every trip. They're all kind of different. Yeah, but the interesting thing with that is, it also sort of defines that for a generation, it was their end of their career. Yeah. And for another generation, it was the beginning of their career of deploying. Yeah. So it was, yeah, you know, it was that sort of point where the two circles overlap in the Venn diagram. Yeah. The old and the new meeting for a little while, in something that the public were interested in. And the world was sort of interested in and could kind of make sense of, you know, yeah. helping people to build the nation they want. You know, people can get their head around that. So amongst that trip that I did uh, to East Timor, I was part of the malaria drug trial. Um, so, you know, that was another kind of off spin as well. And I, do you know much about that? I've heard of it. Yeah. So obviously we did a trial with a number of different malarial drugs, um, and yeah it was at that particular time we had a you know there's there is some trouble with some guys have had some health issues after it um but that's another story if you want to talk about another day Mm. it it seems like a a good place you've done your first trip away yeah and look i uh i I mean i'm not talking about everything that that happened over there no 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 but um I, i came back from that place and i was changed um, and I didn't realise until a number of years, um, but now looking back at it, what I know with mental health issue, I was I was I was suffering mm. from you know, when I came back, and they kind of turned into you know I had to develop coping methods and all, that, all the rest of it. So you but, both uh, got to use everything you'd learned, but get that first experience of moral injury, yeah, and get the positive effect of I know what I'm doing, but also the deleterious effect of the environment in which you have to do your job has effects. Yeah. Mm. That seemed like a good place. Yeah. To... Look, uh, John, thank you so much for, for sharing and I guess for kind of proving that you, know, you, can, you can ask questions. <laughs> um, if that's what we've achieved, if, I think at least. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. No worries. Thank you. And thank you, David. Thank you, listeners, and we'll have another episode for you soon with John. Hello audience, thank you for listening to Blind Insights. If you're enjoying the show, please remember to subscribe and share your favourite episodes or leave us a review if you really love us. We'd love to hear from you. Get in contact with us on Facebook or Twitter at Blind Insights or send us a recorded question to the email in the description to feature on an episode. Also, don't forget that we have merchandise. Thank you to the Ozcast Network. Peace out.